Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. the 18th of February. Good morning, good morning, good morning. It's time to rise and shine. Um, this is Carmen LaBerge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. It is great to be with you this morning. Uh, I hope that on this, what for many people is like a Monday, for many people today, ha- yesterday having been President's Day, um, this is going to be a short work week for a lot of people. Be patient with one another this morning um, on your way to school or to work. Uh, I know that the roads are treacherous in lots of places. We're certainly praying for our neighbors uh, down south in Mississippi as the water floodwaters begin to recede there, hopefully today. Um, but that just means that they have a real mess to deal with. I'm I'm mindful that, you know, wow, was it like a year ago that we were talking with folks in uh, in the Omaha region about just horrific floodwaters there? And um, we had... Just really extensive conversations at that point in time about um, all of the challenges that we face related to uh, unwelcome water when it arrives. And so let's just be praying today for people in Australia who are still dealing with uh, historic droughts and and historic uh, bushfires. And let's be uh, praying today for people in the eastern part of the continent of Africa who are dealing with um, swarms of locusts that really are of biblical proportions. And then let's be praying for our neighbors right here in the United States dealing with things like floodwaters. And uh, the list is long. And so um, maybe just today being mindful that everyone around us, everyone around us is dealing with a burden that um, is bigger than we could imagine and a burden that is difficult to bear. It may be a burden at home. It may be a burden at work. It may be the burden of aging parents. It may be um, the burden of an unexpected pregnancy. It may be um, the burden of a, a health diagnosis. It may be the burden of debt. It may be um, the burden of a broken relationship. Um, people are carrying a lot around with them every single day. And you and I, um, if we're aware of that, if we're aware of that, if we're aware of it about ourselves and we're aware of it uh, about others, maybe that that would lead us to just be a little more gentle today in the way we handle one another, a little less sharp with our words, a little uh, more patient in our approach. It probably doesn't matter if you have, if there's one more person in front of you uh, in the checkout line at the grocery store or or if you let somebody into traffic, even though even though I recognize that they should have gotten over 10 minutes ago, they, they knew that this was a turn lane and they should have gotten over, um, maybe just grant a little grace today in some of those moments. So where are the moments today where you might grant um, a little grace, a grace that might just be sufficient to lighten the burden of your neighbor? First up this morning, we're going to talk with Nick Pitts. He and I have a litany of headlines to cover. Um, we're we're going to lead off with some of the comments that Democratic candidates 
made in an event in Las Vegas. It's called the Faith Forum. And one of the things I'm going to um, I'm going to talk with Nick about is when we hear that people are referred to as people of faith, a room full of people of faith is how these uh, folks are referred to. Um, how How is that term being used and how are Christians being understood in the culture today um, as people of faith? And how is that brought to bear on our political discourse? All of that up next here on Mornings with Carmen. He's a fellow at the Institute for Global Engagement. You can follow him on Twitter at JNickPitts. Welcome back, my friend. Carmen, so good to be with you. It's always a joy. You, you, uh, I don't know if you know this, but I mean, like, I smile when I hear your voice. You brighten my day. <laughs> I'm trying to be the farmer that brings a cold glass of water in a culture that is increasingly thirsty. Oh, amen. So, so, so there's got to be, there's good news right around the corner, and it's what a time to be alive. Well, that's true. Absolutely. What a time to be alive. (laughs) All right. So speaking of the times in which we live, Democratic candidates, or at least several of them, gathered uh, in Vegas recently at something called the Faith Forum. Um, Now, this is not uh, this is not an event that was maybe covered by conservative media very much because, Mm -hmm. frankly, the people of faith in the room and the Faith Forum around which they gathered and the issues about which they were discussing um, tend to be liberal. Um, liberal, yeah. cons- more, more liberal concerns. So I want to start with I want to start with this question. Like when we hear, quote unquote, that somebody was talking to a room full of people of faith, you know, a room full of people who are then referred to as people of faith. What are some of the questions that we need to ask before we even read any further? Yeah, it's it's shocking. It's almost like we went back 40 years ago. I'm sure many of your listeners will probably remember a term known as blue dog Democrats. Those are Democrats uh, from bygone eras of the 80s, 90s, and um, in Tennessee for sure, when you have John Tanner and others that were very much would have been considered socially conservative on some of their platform views, would have been such a thing as a pro-life Democrat. Um, but what we found this past week in Las Vegas were just individuals like all of your listeners that were trying to figure out what does it look like to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. And with Democrats in particular, the two candidates that were featured were Mayor Pete Buttigieg and Tom Steyer. And I thought what was so interesting is Steyer emphasized this idea of wanting to show respect to individuals. And then he has great concern for the environment, obviously. That's his uh, part of his platform that he's running on. And Mayor Pete wanted to be useful in this world. Mayor Pete has been someone that has utilized his faith probably the most out of the Democratic candidates, but were very interesting. Whereas on the Republican side, you often hear about the pro-life issue, which is of significant importance um, when it comes to faith and value issues. On the Democratic side, you're more often going to hear a message from rooted in Matthew 25 of concerning yourself with the least of these. And specifically, those are often the uh, initiatives such as criminal justice reform and immigration as well, this upcoming cycle. So at this faith forum, the folks who were gathered are described as um, faith-based community organizers. And so these are folks who are definitely trying to, um, you know, get the, they're trying to get out the vote. 
They yeah. also want to see increased participation by people of faith or an expanded role of religion in the public square. And when I hear those things, I might I might immediately say, wow, I resonate with all of that. I want more people to vote. Um, I mean, I think that has a, a um, democratizing effect on everything. Yeah. Um, and, and I certainly want people of faith and people of religious views to uh, have, you know, have their say in the public square. Um, however, if I read further and I recognize what is being um, actually discussed and talked about, I might find myself on, on a ve- at a very different place in terms yeah. of how faith influences the public square on particular issues. So um, can, can you differentiate one thing in this article for me? So they talk about not wanting to hear these guys stump speech. They, they really wanted to um, you know, talk about substantive things of concern to them, uh, which led me to the question of pandering. And what's the difference yeah. between stump speech and pandering to a particular audience? And help us understand that in this political season. Yeah. So you've got a highly, so, uh, so for your listeners, my research, uh, that I did in grad school was on John F. Kennedy's 1960 presidential election and how he was, um, just very much targeted specific groups. So, so to Catholics, he really emphasized the message of being the favorite son, but to Protestants, uh, he was going to emphasize this idea that the, co- the Pope doesn't speak for me and I don't speak for the Pope. And should I have to violate my conscience in office, I won't uh, do so. Well, uh, Stump Speech is going to try to appeal to the vast majority of the individuals. And it's going to be a smorgasbord of variety of groups. Whereas pandering more often than not is issuing promises that you don't plan necessarily on delivering or emphasizing to the degree that you would at that particular speech. What you find with Tom Steyer and Mayor Pete at this particular rally is they were honing in on particular issues that were very significant to this group. And it appeared as though criminal justice reform and immigration were two significant issues that percolated to the top. And we just wonder, uh, one, I guess inevitably the question is always raised, how much can a president in and of himself really do anything to move this needle outside of congressional approval? And then two, do they really plan on emphasizing these particular issues when they get into office? All right. I want to I want to come back from the break and talk with you about what's going on in higher ed uh, here in the United States of America. And a particular story that you lifted up um, about Logsdon Seminary, which I might not even be pronouncing correctly. But that conversation is up next with Nick Pitts. He's a fellow at the Institute for Global Engagement. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. Continue my conversation now with Nick Pitts. He is a fellow at the Institute for Global Engagement. You can follow him on Twitter at JNickPitts. All right, Nick, what's going on in um, in American higher ed? Now, that's a really big, broad question, so let's focus <laughs> down a, in. <laughs> that's really the question. Like, Carmen, you're, let me tell you, this one stat, it just sends shockwaves to me because I think it affects so many people. And so consider this. In 10 years... of higher education institutions will be closed or will merge with other existing institutions. 50% based on forecasts. And so what we're seeing right now 
is that there is this reemergence that's starting to happen and this changing that's happening across the U.S. in some of these higher education institutions that so many of us hold dearly because that's where we were really formed and we have significant ties because those lifelong friendships were forged at these places. And there has been such a visceral response and gut check here in Texas among Texas Baptists this past week when we heard the news that Logston Seminary, which is a part of the Hardin-Simmons University community, is cutting 22 of its academic programs, 33 members of their staff and faculty. And, and, and now it really is because of these, it's just a, increasingly a difficult position uh, for these higher educations to be in right now because we're seeing a shrinking in the, a, uh, shrinking in the population growth with the, relative to the birth weight. We're seeing skyrocketing prices of student loans and more students choosing not to go to school, but rather to enter the market force, enter the marketplace. And so we're starting to see many of these universities that so many of us hold dearly close down or morph and change. And it has drastic implications, not only for Christians, but also just for communities across the U.S. Well, and I think part of, I mean, there's so many aspects and component parts to this. Part of it is oh, yeah. that the the way people go about getting their education has changed mm-hmm. so radically. People are more oh, yeah. interested in really flexible programs. They're, you know, they're interested in doing as much online or on the weekends with as little disruption to their life as possible. Um, I mean, certainly for, for folks who already have a job or don't want to accrue a tremendous amount of student debt, like they are finding creative ways to go to school um, without going physically to school. And there's so many yeah. schools that are dependent on the residential component um, or require the residential component. And I understand the reasons for that, but I also understand that, you know, like disintermediation is striking everywhere. And so it's not a surprise to me that it's striking um, in one of our most expensive, in terms of time and money, uh, one of our most expensive areas, which is higher education. Yeah, you're seeing it. You hit it right on the dot. I mean, you've got one, the, the, the significant the proliferation of these online education institutions, which, I mean, you can't, I mean, Liberty University has, I, think, I believe it's the largest online university program. And so they've really capitalized on this idea of instead of going, instead of asking students to come to them, they are going to students in the form of online education. I think another way that you're going to see it, though, is that really it's important for us to understand some of these higher education institutions, many of them, according to research, are a positive good in their local communities. What's often referred to in higher education circles as the town and gown relationship. These are the schools that are providing the student teachers for local schools to really help shape and infuse uh, new energy into some of these schools and allow the these student teachers to be able to learn from these wise, old, older teachers. These are the type of programs that are really helping out um, in, in some of the philanthropic activities and charitable um, uses uh, with students. And so it's, it's just a really fascinating story that I think is going to continue to have implications as, as we make our way into the future. So when we talk about um, and we anticipate the, the clo- I mean, really, frankly, the closure, I mean, there will be closures. Um, yeah. it, I mean, oh, yeah. some of these will merge and, and sort of morph. Um, but many, many, many of them will, will close. And if we're talking about in, in a 10-year period of time, 50% of institutions of higher education in the United States of America either closing or merging with another institution. Um, will, you know, we, we're talking about the radical, yeah, radical transformation, not only of those communities, but a radical transformation of Christian higher ed as well. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think oh, that, yeah. uh, you know, for a lot of folks that as you are making your decisions about where to invest um, and where to send your kids uh, to school, um, if we're not supporting distinctively Christian higher ed, um, then it will not be available. Like we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're reaching that point. Yeah, I mean, you, you think of, this is this will affect the Sunday morning experience significantly when you have a number of institutions now. Where are we going to be sending some of our, uh, uh, and I'm not saying that to be a minister that you have to have an education, but I do see this as a positive good to help train you. Uh, my boss, Jim Dennison, often says that the Holy Spirit has a strange affinity for the trained mind, um, that uh, a lot of these institutions that have trained these ministers' minds to be able to equip the people of God for the buildup of the church are beginning to disappear off the scene. And so what will take its place is yet to be seen right now. But what I do know is that it's not just going to affect the church, but it'll also affect many American communities as well. You know, I think we could um, we could match this up uh, with a conversation, Nick, about the closure of American churches in many, many local oh, communities yeah. as well. Uh, and so I just think that as we, as we consider Um, The way that the world is changing and the way that the choices of individuals and families um, are changing in relationship not only to higher education, but in relationship to um, participation in local congregations. Like we were really talking about changing the fabric of local communities across the country um, for generations like this. We are talking about a real generational shift in the way we function as a people when these institutions, local churches and then local uh, colleges and universities when these disappear. Uh, and, and, you know, I love stats, so I'll give you two stats before we have to leave. One being the, the reality that up, up to 200 churches every week close here in the U.S. 200 churches, Carmen, close every week here in the U.S. So they gather on Sunday morning and they won't be back next Sunday morning. So 200 churches. And then the reality to make it full circle is that Approximately 19% of Christians would say that the Bible influences their political beliefs. Well, if the Bible is supposed to be a light to our path and the, and, and the church is to help us make sense of the biblical narrative, and it's really important for us not only to have thriving churches, but also churches that compel us to move into the political sphere in order that we might love our neighbor through politics as well. All right. It's all connected, man. Um, even though people would like to imagine that it's all compartmentalized, it's not. It's a it's a web. Um, Nick Pitts, thank you so much, as always, for um, bringing the numbers to us and giving us the perspective. Uh, you guys can find Nick on Twitter at J. Nick Pitts. He's a fellow at the Institute for Global Engagement. Love talking with you, man. Have a great week. Uh, you as well. We'll be right back. Okay, so a few headlines to hit uh, here that you may or may not have heard. Um, The Boy Scouts of America has filed for bankruptcy. Um, You'll remember that it was just a few years ago that the Boy Scouts um, began changing their leadership standards. They then began began changing their standards of participation. Um, That led to uh, a mammoth number of troops that had long been associated with the Boy Scouts actually moving Um, to affiliate with a a genuinely faith-based expression um, called, what's it called? Trail Life. And and so you could check out Trail Life as a really good alternative to what the Boy Scouts of America has now become, or Scouting USA, uh, which is their new name. Um, And so 
one of the things that um, I would just observe here is that financial bankruptcy is really following um, moral bankruptcy. The moral bankruptcy comes first, followed by the financial bankruptcy. And uh, I think that's important to highlight and note here. Now, as you read about this or hear about this, you're going to note that um, that this this bankruptcy filing is tied directly to all of the claims now being made against the Boy Scouts of America related to sexual abuse over many, many uh, decades. And so um, we want to lift up again our concern for vulnerable people and our concern for kids and the environments in which um, they are placed. I'm remembering here a conversation that I had on air with Kimberly Norris about how we can protect our kids um, from predators. And that is our responsibility. Like, we, we, you cannot just blindly trust anyone to care for or supervise your child. Like, that's a, that's a sacred trust. God placed that little person in your sacred trust. Um, and so let's be responsible today to be sure that, um, that our kids are in environments that we have vetted and with people um, who we have, we have a personal reason to trust. So don't just trust big institutions because they're big. Um, trust individual people because you know them to be uh, morally responsible, uh, especially with the most tender of our little people. All right. Uh, up next, hopefully a conversation with Melissa Oden. We haven't connected with her yet, but that's uh, that's what I am going to promise on her book, You Carried Me. We'll be right back. If you're a parent trying to raise your kids in a godly home, you probably know this verse from Proverbs. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. That verse from Proverbs may strike a nerve for you, especially if your teens made some bad decisions and wandered from the faith. But it wasn't given as an indictment of parents and their effectiveness. No, it's an encouragement for parents to be intentional about spiritual things. Build godly principles and precepts into your kids' lives, and God will be faithful to care for your kids. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Parenting Teens isn't for the faint of heart. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Check out his latest resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Melissa Oden uh, was 14 when she learned that she was an abortion survivor. And she's here today to share her memoir, You Carried Me. Melissa, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning. So there are people listening right now who are, would, recognize, um, your, would recognize your face and will recognize your voice from your testimony before Congress. You have really become a leading voice in the country um, on, on the subject of uh, abortion and the wounds that uh, that exist throughout family systems related to it. So I'd love for you to just simply share your story. Sure. The short version is that 42 years ago, my birth mother as a 19-year-old college student actually had a saline infusion abortion forced upon her against her will. It's really been a lifetime for me, Carmen, to really unfold her story as well as mine. But you know, like so many women, I now know that she didn't have a choice. My maternal grandmother was a prominent nurse in their community of Sioux City, Iowa. 
had the knowledge about the scientific and the biblical basis for when life begins, but also had the knowledge of how to make this forced abortion take place, bypassing hospital regulations and procedures at the time. So that type of procedure was the most common back in the 1970s. And I know it's not a pleasant thing to hear about, but you know, I'll share a little bit about it with the listeners because I think they need to understand just what God has done in my life. That saline infusion abortion involved injecting a toxic salt solution into the amniotic fluid surrounding me in the womb. And the intent of that toxic salt solution was to poison and scald me to death. Typically, the procedure lasted about 72 hours. The child would, of course, soak in that toxic salt solution. Their life would be ended when it was effective. And then they would induce premature labor with the intent of that deceased child being expelled from the womb. As horrific as all of that is, I think, you know, the horrific part for me is knowing that I didn't just soak in that toxic salt solution for just three days. My medical records actually reflect that I soaked in it for five two days longer than the standards of that procedure, solely because they couldn't successfully induce her labor. And so finally, on the fifth day, they were successful. Her labor was induced. I was delivered at St. Luke's Hospital, believing that I was a successful abortion. And, you know, evidently here, I was accidentally born alive. Again, friends, I'm talking uh, with Melissa Oden. The book is You Carried Me. It's a daughter's memoir. Um, and I think that there's um, I love that that is the way that you refer to this book. I love that this um, includes not only your story, but all that you learned about your birth mother and how um, she really has become an integral part of this conversation. Um, how How is she involved in in this book so that folks can kind of get a sense of what is in here? First of all, Melissa, let me just tell you, I'm surprised by how um, I, I use the word brief concise um this book is there this could have been a 500 page tome and it's not i mean this is this is something that's very accessible for the reader um i feel like this is a wonderful conversation piece for um for any group of people but particularly women in a church setting um mm-hmm. who need a conversational guide and frankly who need to better understand Uh, women who have had abortions and how we can start saying this word out loud in church so that we can begin to participate in some redemptive healing in relationship to it. So talk with us a little bit about about your mom and how she became involved in this book. Absolutely. And I agree with you, Carmen. I, I am always so blessed when people will say, gosh, we've been reading this at our church. We've been doing this with Bible study. You know, and I think, oh, my goodness, that's so humbling. But I'm so grateful because that's what it's there for. This wasn't about me. It was about other people and not just for other people to hear my story, but my birth mothers. You know, it's been a long, long journey to reach her. I, as you shared in the introduction, I didn't know my story until I was 14 and then had to go through this whole process of of grieving and stumbling and suffering and healing and then ultimately started looking for her. And I didn't find out who she was until, oh my goodness, 2007. And then went through another six years after that before I had any kind of communication with her. 
And so it's been a long time to get to know her story. And I think the saddest part for me is now knowing that not only was it not her choice to have that abortion, but I also now know that she was was not even aware that I survived for over 30 years. Mm. She did not know. It was kept a secret. And so this book was a labor of love, not just for me, but for her, for her to finally have the opportunity to share her story in a world that somehow wants to pretend that, you know, people like me don't exist, that women like her don't have these kind of experiences. It's really uh, an important opportunity for both of us to share a story that doesn't fit the predominant narrative. Right. It doesn't fit the narrative at all. I mean, we have had conversations recently here on air with, um, you know, with mature Christian women who have been willing to come and, and talk about their own history with abortion um, and and share their grief related to that, um, but then also share how God has redeemed redeemed them. Um, and, and they're, you know, pro much like you now pro-life advocates and seeking to um, uh, to come alongside women um, today and hopefully help them make a different decision about the life of their child. Um, Melissa, your your search for your birth parents um, took a long time. Maybe you could suge- maybe make some suggestions now to if there's somebody listening and they're like, I, I don't even know what the first step in finding my birth parents might be. Um, what might a first step be? You know, I was just talking to someone about that on the phone yesterday who's searching for their birth parents. It's Oh, it is. It's a long and complicated process sometimes. But I think, you know, there are so many important steps to take. First of all, it's preparation emotionally and spiritually. You know, I think that's the most important because I think sometimes even though we're looking for people, what we're also doing is we're trying to find ourselves. And I think we're really trying to to find out who God is in the midst of that. So a lot of it, I think, is emotional preparation. But, you know, logistically, I would suggest things like you know, trying to collect all the paperwork that someone possibly could have on file. So adoption decrees, you know, background information. They can petition the court in the community where their adoption was finalized to be given non-identifying medical information. Uh, You can go online and you can be part of uh, an adoption search registry. There are state and there are international You can also do, you know, those little DNA tests now. Lots of people are doing that. Um, I've found a lot of people are successful in finding biological family through those means. So, you know, there are a lot of tools right now that people can utilize to kind of piece the puzzle together, because that's really what my 10 years of searching really was. You know, I'd find one piece of the puzzle and then I would have to search for another. And then you try to figure out how those pieces fit together. Um, So, yeah, just logistically, I think those are some important things. But really just being prayerful throughout it all is so important because I know how frustrating it is. But I also know that that God's timing really was perfect for me. I'm talking with Melissa Oden, among other things. She is the author of You Carried Me, a daughter's memoir. We're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. And we're going to talk about the the pathway of emotions and things that Melissa experienced along the way after having learned that she was a survivor of abortion um, and how God really led her down uh, a really extraordinary path, not only to himself, 
but to the transformation of real grace um, and how her grief ultimately became forgiveness and now bears the fruit of love. So we're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. Continuing my conversation with Melissa Oden, her book, You Carried Me, A Daughter's Memoir. Um, this is uh, this is an excellent resource, not only for us as individuals, um, but this is an excellent resource if you are a woman um, who has abortion as a part of your story. Um, we have talked here recently with Bridget and with Kay um, and with others for whom that is that is a part of their story. Um, and this is redemptive. This is a re- this book you carried me is not just Melissa's redemptive journey. It really does open up redemptive conversations and the possibility of real healing um, for millions of people for whom this is a part of their story. And so, uh, Melissa, if you would be so gracious as to walk us through a little of that, when you um, found out at fourteen that you were an abortion survivor. Um, what were your reactions then? And then what was kind of the, uh, the, the churning pathway of, uh, of emotions along the way that eventually lead us to this place of love? Yeah, that's a difficult place to start, <laughs> to be honest. You know, that was one of the conversations I had with God over the years was, I am never going to tell anyone about how much this hurt, right? I'm not going to tell anyone just how much I struggled in the midst of it. And, you know, God reminded me time and time again, you know what, if you share your story, it will bring other people help and hope. And so I became brutally honest in this book, as as people now know, you know, when I found out that I survived that failed abortion, I knew God spared my life. I could feel this stirring in my soul that said, Melissa, he has a very particular purpose for you. But I also felt so much pain, you know, to be 14 and find out that someone had tried to end my life in an abortion. And it, it was people that I had been grown up to believe, you know, loved me so much. It was just so devastating. And so, yeah, I struggled with anger and guilt for surviving and shame and embarrassment because we live in a culture that says that what happened to me is perfectly normal and that really I shouldn't ever talk about it. And so like many, I think women in particular, I turned my pain inward. So developed an eating disorder, trying to control something when I couldn't control how I came into this world. I struggled with alcohol abuse at the age of 14 to about, you know, 16-ish, really just trying to numb all of those emotions that were raging inside of me, all of the questions inside my head you know, so many poor dating relationships, right? Just poor choice after poor choice, which, you know, knowing that you've spoken to women recently who had had abortions, I'm sure their story sounded very much like mine. I'm having trouble hearing you. Sorry, Um, my technology is going off. (laughs) That's okay. So I'm not having any trouble hearing you. Just to, I'm just going to confirm that I have better ears this morning than um, Siri or Alexa, whoever is overhearing us. Um, so that's totally fine. That's totally fine. It's real life, right? Um, so Melissa, let's let's pick up there. So I think that when I talk with women who are trapped in what I would describe as a, 
a cycle of a life controlling issue that they just mm-hmm. can't break free of. Um, any one of those things that you just described might have become for you a life controlling issue, but that mm-hmm. is not what happened. And so, um, where does where does this path change so remarkably? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is a remarkable change. People often say that. How do you get from there to where you are today? And you know, I know it sounds cliche for some people when I say it's Jesus, but really it is. You know, to be 14 years old, yes, I was raised in a very faith-filled home. My parents loved me, supported me, but had no idea how much I struggled. I hid it from the world, and I was really successful in that. I really was. Uh, So nobody knew the depths of my suffering, but he did. He did. And he reminded me every single day through all those little whispers, through the words of other people, right, by the words that I would read sometimes that are never a coincidence. You know, you are not an accident. There are no mistakes. I I have more planned for you than this, Melissa. And you have this ability every single day to take a look around yourself and say, you know what, what I'm doing is not helping. And I believe that really is the, po- the power of the Holy Spirit that says, you know, that poor choice is not helping you. It's hurting you. And you go back to the one true thing that is anchoring you, that can provide you any of that stability. And for me, it was Jesus day in and day out. And so it was taking one step each day, right, to say, okay, today I'm going to follow him. I'm going to acknowledge the fact that he loves me. He wants more for me. And I'm going to do something to walk that out, right? You don't, for me, I didn't get to wake up one day and go, woo, I'm good. Um, No, I had to make that choice every single day to do one thing to follow him and better myself in the midst of that. And I truly believe that's how I got here. But I think the other part, Carmen, that's super important for me too, to acknowledge is that forgiving my birth parents was part of that. So forgiving your birth parents is a part of that. I'm wondering if as we um, as we conclude our conversation today, um, because there's another set of parents that's just really essential mm-hmm. to this conversation, and that's Ron and Linda. Um, there are people listening right now who are considering adopting a child who's going to be complicated to raise. Um, mm-hmm. Can you just speak a word to people considering abortion today and also to people considering adoption? Absolutely. My mom and dad are Ron and Linda, my adoptive parents. For listeners who don't know my story, and my mom and dad are forever my mom and dad, no matter what kind of beautiful relationship I have with my biological family. But my mom and dad um, have blessed me. I, I know I can't speak enough good about them, but my parents struggled with infertility for over 15 years, fostered children, and then adopted my sister and I before having a biological child of their own. And for anyone out there who is considering, you know, uh, placing a child for adoption or wonders about that, I will tell you that, you know, it blesses families, it blesses that child, and it's, a, it's an option that everyone can live with. You know, uh, abortion versus adoption is very clear in my book. Adoption gave me life and it gave me love and it gave me the ability to love and forgive my biological family. And, you know, for anyone out there who is considering abortion, what I want you to know is that that has lifelong consequences and not just for that child, 
but for you and for other people who love you and are in your life. This isn't something that that you just get to walk away from. That's what our culture says, but I can tell you that's not what I've experienced in my life or in other people's lives. And I want you to know that, that God has a plan for you. God has a plan for you, not just your child, but for you. And, you know, thwarting God's will has an impact on your life. And so I just want you to know if you're considering abortion, there are places to go. Pregnancy centers right there in your community. You know, there are so many ministries through churches like Embrace Grace that come alongside women who maybe have no support um, to help them along the way. You are not alone. Melissa Oden is the author of You Carried Me, a daughter's memoir. You can find the book everywhere books are sold. You can also find Melissa at her website, Melissa Oden. Oden is spelled O-H-D-E-N, MelissaOden.com. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen and for, for sharing your story. Thank you. We'll be right back. Okay, so as we draw this hour uh, to a conclusion today, I just want to encourage you one more time to um, extend some grace today to the people around you. Um, people are going to do terrible things today, um, and, they're, and they're also just going to make basic mistakes, and they're going to do things by impulse that they do not mean to, um, to hurt you or to wound you or to inconvenience you, but they're going to do them. And so let's be people today of grace. You and I have no idea the burden with which many people are walking around today and what they are trying to carry. Um, and so let's be people of grace today. Let's um, let's extend grace as we're driving. Let's extend grace as we're waiting in line somewhere. Uh, let's just be people who are extensions of grace. Why? Why? Well, so that more and more people might come to know um, the grace that we experience in Jesus Christ. It's just that simple. Be a conduit of grace today, an agent of God's grace in the world that he so loves. If you're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We've got another hour up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.